Julie Hurst was part of the team that brought the term work-life balance into our global vernacular. It's not a term that I particularly like, as you might have heard me say on the podcast many times before, but it's absolutely fascinating to hear how Julie, together with a team of professors, ran a survey every year for 10 years to find out what it meant or what it took to have a good balance and ultimately a flourishing and happy life. She shares their three key findings and how she's personally gone on to create the Work-Life Balance Centre, training teachers in the skills needed to create a positive education for children, which she is absolutely passionate about. Julie's a wonderful storyteller, and I hope you enjoy this inspiring episode with Julie Hurst. Welcome to the pursuit of well-being. My name's Maria Brosnan, and I'm an educational well-being specialist and your host for this show. Here on the podcast, I'll be speaking with leading figures in education about the issues affecting schools and teachers today. We'll share tools and practical ideas to help you thrive, not just survive, as an educator. My guest today is Julie Hurst. Julie is a positive psychologist who specialises in working with schools. Through the use of positive education, she helps schools create lives of flourishing, meaning and resilience for children and staff while supporting academic performance. She's also the founder of the Work-Life Balance Centre, which we will definitely be exploring in detail. She's currently studying for her PhD in the impact of compassion practices on children's well-being. She's a member of the International Positive Education Network and frequently speaks at conferences around the UK. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for asking me along. I'm delighted. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. I, I have to start with the Work-Life Balance Centre. Uh, I think many of our listeners listening to this will be thinking, what even is work-life balance anymore? It seems to have flown out the window more than ever. So uh, tell us about the Work-Life Balance Centre. How did you get into it and what, what do you do there? Uh, well, it's uh, a bit of a, a closed circle kind of tale. I started off in psychology. Uh, and then I left psychology for a while to do anything but psychology. Um, and that, that was great because I went from studying the conditions of the human psyche to working with journalists. I became a journalist for a, a while and I met all of the people I felt I'd been studying. Yeah. <laughs> except I worked with them. Um, and I, I loved that. I then went to the NHS for a while, so psychology was gradually pulling me back around. Um, and after that, I left and set up the Work-Life Balance Centre. And, and it happened because when I was working in the NHS, I worked in a public relations department. We did a lot of training with people, and I started to talk to people about what at the time was called executive burnout, mm. uh, as we were seeing it more and more frequently. And I just became fascinated by it and started reading about it and what was happening and then discovered it was also called work-life balance and just worked with people on that until one day someone said to me, never mind all this media stuff you're doing, you ought to be doing this. This is clearly what ignites your passion. And that was it. Clearly, psychology had followed me and got hold of me and dragged me back in, <laughs> uh, not unwillingly, I have to say, and and. That it's been my home ever since. And it just fascinated me that there is so much that we can do if only we know about it. Mm -hmm. and, and I love psychology. I'm very proud to be a positive psychologist. But I do think, you know, between you and I, as no one's 
going to wrap me out. I do think psychologists are quite bad at telling people all of the wonderful things we know. Uh, and we know so much and we just kind of just tell each other and have little conferences that, that members of the public don't come to. So I decided to be brave and say to people, hey, look, this is what we're doing. This is what we know. And we are getting better at it, but I still think there's a lot of stuff that people need to know. And it just became that. It, when when you read it in a line, it sounds quite planned. Um, living it, it felt more kind of serendipitous. But clearly, I was meant, whatever I did, to, to go back to psychology. So that's where I've ended up. And you did 10 years of research, didn't you, to into work-life balance. And I, and I find it interesting that you link those terms executive burnout and work-life balance, because work-life balance sounds so much more benign, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. You know, I, I remember the very first time I went into a company, thankfully I've forgotten the name of the company, um, and sat down with their CEO and said, look, this is what I want to do and achieve this balance and, and, and so on in your workforce. And he asked me to leave because he thought I was going to make his workforce lazy. Uh, so we've come a long way mm. since then. But but yes, it, it does sound more benign, but actually it's quite active. Mm. You know, a balanced life, a flourishing life does not just drop from the ceiling on you. You, you have to take certain steps to, to build it. And... I often joke, but it's only half a joke, that one of the first things we discovered about running a national survey into work-life balance for 10 years, that is that it, it can destroy your work-life balance. Um, so we had to walk the walk as well as talk the talk and, and look after what we did. Um, I worked with a whole group of professors, so I was the only non-professor in the group. I was the only civvy. And... Um, <laughs> And I often joke with people that that automatically made me the group eye candy. Um, but I was also more or less the front-facing one, the one allowed to interact with members of the public as, as they were. The others were all super and, and the somewhat more ivory tower. Um, and it was a, an interesting experience working with them. I had a bit of a massive dip into the world of academia which isn't always as collegiate as one might assume, because uh, I was working across three or four universities as well and trying to get these uh, men and women together. Um, it was a bit like herding cats occasionally. <laughs> but out of it each year, um, we birthed this, this annual report into what was going on in the UK. And it went all around the world. That took us by surprise. Mm. Uh, it literally went all around the world. Uh, and I... I did interviews in South Africa and and the States. Sadly, I wasn't in those places, uh, but but literally companies all over the world started to look to what we were doing. And that, and that was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. But after 10 years, I think we'd all definitely felt it had run its course. It had gone from the point where work-life balance barely existed as a term to the fact that lots of research was being done on it. So we we, uh, a bit like a boy band, we respectfully stepped out of the limelight and, and retired the survey. Um, and it, it was a great 10 years. Uh, and I learned so much from, from those wonderful professors. But it, it had definitely, you know, we, we, we parted still very good friends and it, it was time to retire. Other people could take up the baton and, and we needed to do other things. 
And what was the main the main thrust of what you learned from all of that 10 years of research into work-life balance? What did you come up with? One of the biggest findings, interestingly, was that almost the same proportions of people found work satisfying and, and a great source of self-esteem as also found it made them ill. Mm-hmm. So it seems a real double-edged sword work. Mm-hmm. We love it and it has negative impacts on us in roughly the same proportions. But out of it, we came up with a a model of where we felt balance or resilience lives. And so the model has three components. One is control, and that's not controlling everything because that's not a balanced, well positioned to be in to try and control everything and everyone. But it is about a sense of control and self-control, self-efficacy. So understanding yourself and your emotions. The other was well-being, which is the one that people can most easily understand, mental and physical well-being. And the third component for us was bounce back. So life is going to come along and knock you down occasionally. Mm-hmm. And it's about not staying too flat for too long and bouncing back quickly. So those were what we saw as the three main components to this. Nowadays, I guess we've moved on even from work-life balance to talk about resilience and well-being but to live in that centre sweet spot with the overlap of those three components. That's what was ideal. And what do you find that were the biggest barriers for people being able to do that? So if if you say really interestingly that half people find it very difficult, but half found work a really great source of self-esteem, et cetera. What did you find was the main barrier or the main factor that separated both of those states? It's what goes on between your ears. One of the things I used to stand up and say at at large conferences, um, sometimes with a bit of trepidation given how it was received, was that your experience of work and indeed life depends more on what's going on between your ears than it does any external circumstance. Mm. And that is a viewpoint that has been upheld over and over and over again, largely by the positive psychology movement. So some of the greats like Martin Seligman and Sonia Lubomirsky, they they tell us that how we process something has more effect on us than the event itself. Yeah. So talking to people, what's the biggest barrier? It's what's going on between your ears. And specifically, is is there a kind of language? What is it that that's happening in people's thoughts and in their minds? Um, there, there are various kind of subdivisions of each of the control, well-being, and bounce-back areas, if you like. One of the big ones for me in control is the use of compulsion language. So, have to, must, mm-hmm. ought to, should, particularly should and must. Should and must thinking, we know drives frustration. It sends us into a a threat mode. Now, threat mode is not a bad thing. We need it occasionally. Otherwise, we'd never cross the road successfully. If we didn't look around and see oncoming traffic as a threat, that would not end well. Mm. But we don't and are not made to be in threat mode for so much of the time. It's supposed to be a, a quick thing. You know, it comes from there's a bear get away from the bear, kill the bear, or be eaten by the bear. It's a short-term response. Fight, flight, freeze. And it's supposed to be quickly activated and then 
sorted and, and down we back go, go to normal. But constant emails and meetings and, and Zooms and all the rest of it, we're not really made for that. And so we shouldn't be in threat mode all of the time. So when we activate it through the language we use inside our own heads, shoulds, must, um, it doesn't bode well with us. And I, I can share an example with you, if Please that's do. okay. Yeah. Um, so I've worked in some very big companies. And at one time, um, I was working in Canary Wharf at a bank. So we had some quite senior people in in the room talking about their life and we I'd been discussing the language of compulsion and one woman in the group said quite strongly I have to do the job I do which involves very long hours very high levels of stress because my children are going to university and I don't want them to take on a student loan mm -hmm. so I have to work the way I do and another member of the group said I too have a child about to go to university but I've decided they will get a loan. I'll help out as much as I can, mm. but I don't actually want to do a job at the level you're doing it for the very reasons you've described. Too long hours, too much stress. I'd rather be with my child and I'd rather feel well. And mm. so they're going to have to take on the loan and I'll help when I can. So I've just made a different choice for you. But that original speaker could not acknowledge the choice. She was totally wedded to this idea that she had to do that and as she spoke you could hear the stress you could hear the tension you could hear it all in her voice and sadly nothing I or indeed anyone else in the room said could shift her from that idea of she had no choice mm. now when you start to acknowledge have to or must as a choice you may make the same one she may still have decided mm -hmm to do that, but it feels very different. It feels different physiologically, it feels different neurologically, and therefore on times we may make a different choice. I, I can so relate to that because sometimes when I feel like my to-do list is a mile long and I'm feeling like I have to get through this, I, I turn that around and I say to myself, I get to. Like I get to email these people today or I get to speak today. or I, And it's just such a different mindset. It's it's super helpful. I work with senior leaders in schools quite a lot. And, and I do hear that kind of language a lot. I have to, I must. And they do have enormously demanding jobs. But I wonder, because I also have the privilege of working with a lot of senior leaders that have left the profession. And the vast majority of them say, I wish I knew then what I know now, what you're talking with me about now. But when I talk to leaders now, they're like, I don't, I don't have the capacity to take this on. Do you have any advice or thoughts how to help people reframe that I have to, I must kind of thinking into something more, more helpful or less stressful? Yes, I will say the quick fix for that one is to change the must or should into it will be better if. Mm. So, you know, or um, it would be nicer if. So the one I hear most frequently, you know, staff should do this or they should have done that. And so change that to better if. Mm. It would be better if that happened. But it didn't. So now what? So the better if encourages you to complete the sentence. It would be better if X happened. But it didn't. So now what? 
rather than it should have happened, which is just an exclamation mark. You know, that's the end of the sentence. And and so changing that, um, I saw a lovely example uh, of this happening or not happening, depending on how you look at it, a while back um, when I was catching a train to London and the train was cancelled. And one of the gentlemen on the platform just kind of lost it and just said, this shouldn't happen, they should run the trains. And I, and he saved me, really, because I stand there thinking, well, it would be better if trains weren't cancelled, but sometimes they are. <laughs> so, you know, what am I going to do about it? So I rang ahead and explained, and, and people were very sympathetic and, and, and arrangements were made and changes. And what happened was I then bought a magazine and read it, uh, and he raved all the way to London. Yeah. Uh, and he got off still raving, still caught in should and must, looked like he'd been in a in a sauna because he was all hot and his suit was all askew. And I got off with a magazine under my arm and, and hopped off to my arranged meeting. And it's not that I did that naturally, actually. I probably was quite tempted to go down the should route too, but I saw what was happening to him and thought, oh, no, 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 no. Let's go to better if. Yeah. It would be better if. And it sounds like such a daft thing, particularly if you're in the grip of this fight-flight reaction of it should have or it shouldn't have. But just breathe and then change it to better if and watch how all of that adrenaline and cortisol, which is stressing you out, subsides. And once it subsides, you can think. That's the important bit. When we're that chock-a-block full of adrenaline and cortisol, our thinking brain is switched off. Yeah. It is unavailable to us. So actually, if the, if something awful has just happened, you need your thinking brain. And coming out fight, flight, freeze is the best thing you can possibly do. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. And you talk about three kinds of skillfulness in schools when you're working with pupils and staff. Can you tell us what do you mean by skillfulness and what are the skills that can help us manage these challenging situations better? Yes, yeah, so um, I'm quite a fan of the late Maya Angelou and, and she always used to describe human nature and behaviour as we do the best we can. When we know better, we do better. And I love that yeah. because it doesn't condemn us. It's got this idea of redemption. As soon as we know better, we can do better. And that's very much how I encourage teachers to talk to children about behaviour, that it's a skill. So there's skillful behaviour and unskillful behaviour. And as we learn better, we become more skillful. Mm. So our past actions don't condemn us. There's there's something that we can improve on. And children get that idea. They know that practicing sports skills or music skills mean they get better at it. So the idea that they can practice their behavior is is really appealing to them. Mm. And I I talk to them about three levels of skillfulness. So there's um, skillful action which is if you have the chance to be kind, take that chance. Mm. It's that simple. It's to encourage kindness and compassion between the children, between children and their parents and carers, and between children and staff. So if you have the chance to be kind, be kind. And children come up with lovely examples of how they can do that quite freely. Mm. And then there's the somewhat tricky one, which is about skillful thought, which is, Try to think kindly of others, even when they're not kind to you. We never know what's going on in someone else's life. 
Uh, and the example that I give that resonates very well with adults, actually, the example I give with teachers is if you're driving somewhere and you stop to allow another car through the traffic and they don't say thank you, how does that feel? You know, we're all, we can all relate to that and how we feel and oh, how, how ignorant they are and how rude and, and you know, how uncaring. What if that person's just had the most dreadful news yeah. and they're trying to get somewhere? That changes our reaction. So why don't we just make that assumption? We don't know what's going on in their life. So think kindly of them, even though they haven't acted skillfully. Uh, and the other one is one that children love and, and staff love and the children relate to very quickly. And that is before we speak, particularly before we speak about someone else, ask ourselves: is this truthful? Is this kind? Is this necessary? And with social media playing such a big part in the lives of, of both adults and children now, I think those three gates to walk our speech through are really quite important. Mm -hmm. And children really, really respond to that. So before they say something, particularly about someone else, is this truthful? Is this kind? Is this necessary? Mm. And then see what happens. And it was quite interesting when I was doing this session with the class a little while ago, um, there was a little ripple ran through the children as I talked about those three tests. And I, I knew something had just resonated, but I wasn't quite sure what. Uh, and, and the class finished and then they went back for, for dismissal. And a few minutes later, the teacher came running back to me in the room where we'd had the session. She said, I've just got to tell you what happened. A few of the boys realised that earlier today, they'd been teasing one of their classmates and it wasn't truthful, it wasn't kind and it wasn't necessary. And they stood up and felt that they needed to make an apology to him immediately because mm. they hadn't been skillful. And one of the things I'd said to the children is we are all unskillful sometimes. And so I'd gone through with them and helped them design what they felt would be a good way to make an apology. And the boys in question had wanted to enact this immediately because they felt now they knew better, they mm. could do better. Mm. That happened within minutes of the lesson and it was such a great thing to see. And the teacher, a very experienced teacher, said to me, she'd never seen anything like it. But the boy spontaneously said, Miss, we realised we weren't, what we said earlier was not kind, truthful or necessary. We have been unskillful. Oh. <laughs> we'd, like to, we'd like to be skillful now. Fabulous. That level of self-awareness is so helpful isn't it because with self-awareness then you can bring self-regulation but yeah. without any level of self-awareness self-regulation is impossible so I think that's a beautiful example and I think we can all benefit from just taking those moments to pause before we speak or act and and do our best to act skillfully Julie, you talk about Everyday Magic, your flagship program um, that equips teachers to bring the power of positive education into their school. So can you tell us what is Everyday Magic? Yes, well, the name comes from a description of positive education given by, uh, it's actually an Australian school because they were one of the first to ever do it. And um, obviously a lot of people filmed them because it, it was so interesting. And one of the members of staff said, it's like magic every day. And he said, so it's just everyday magic. And I thought, oh, I like that. I like that idea of these skills working like magic, but every day. So, so basically, the full program is a, is a three-day intensive training program for staff. And you can actually do the whole school in one go, depending on the size of the staff body. 
but it's a, a complete walkthrough and how-to guide to positive education with all of the exercises that you can do with children. So the staff get to join in all of the things that they're going to to do with the children, um, everything from compassion practices and, and uh, a kindness walk through to laughter yoga and the impact of laughter on serotonin and therefore memory. So they do the whole lot. Uh, sometimes the expression on staff's faces when we do laughter yoga um, is, is priceless, uh, but I make them do it anyway. Uh, and so it takes them through from the research because positive education is, is highly evidence-based right through to the exercises they can do with a, a range of ages, primarily aimed at primary schools. But to be honest, most of the exercises have been altered from those done with older children. But I'm passionate about working with primary school children because we are seeing so many issues, even before the last year, even before COVID, we've seen such an increase in issues in mental health. Uh, for children, poor mental health outcomes. And we know that uh, experiences at primary school still have an impact in adult wellness. So if we can get it right in primary schools, it makes all of the rest of it so much easier. So my passion is, is working with primary schools. And we also know from some work done um, at Maynooth University in Ireland that one of the biggest dips in children's mental uh, well-being happens in their first year of senior school. Mm -hmm. And so that dip happens and it goes down and it, it takes a while to recover. So what if we could um, develop the children's own internal resources and resilience so that either that dip doesn't happen or at least it's not as bad and, and they can recover more quickly? And that's why I focus on the, the children pre that transition point so everyday magic does that it gives a whole school this ethos of positive education and um, it's great because it's been approved by the British Psychological Society is meeting their standards so that um, the school uh, gets uh, recognition and and that's stamped by uh, the BPS uh, the individual teachers attending get that as well so the school can put up their proud you know we are now a positive education school up on their walls and and they are doing and my passion is to I guess convert teachers to understand that positive education is there to help them help them as an adult but help them help the children and so far, I would say the impact for the schools has been amazing because even during lockdown, they're seeing attainment going up. They are supporting each other. They are supporting the children. And the way that it's changing, even down to the level of, you know, what, what are the chemicals children most need to learn? What are the neurochemicals children most need to learn? And understanding that you need a lovely mixture of serotonin so that they feel happy and their memory is good, a little bit of adrenaline so they can meet things with excitement and dopamine so they feel determined. And how do you do that? Everyday Magic shows you how to get that chemical mix in your classroom mm. and and keep it going. And, and I've had some lovely stories back where schools have done this, both from the teachers 
from they've captured the words of the pupils and parents have actually written to the schools to say I'm not sure what's going on but gosh my child is talking very differently about their school experience now. Wonderful and and I wonder for people who are listening who are not familiar with positive education and positive psychology in general who might be thinking yeah but you know, what about, uh, are we only just having unicorns and rainbows in schools? How do you talk about the more difficult, challenging emotions and experiences and, uh, yeah, the challenges of school? Do we do we just put a glossy kind of rainbow over all of that and, and make it positive? No, it, it's it's great that you mention it. One of the, the slight bugbears that I have is when people say to me, oh, yeah, positive psychology, that's just positive thinking. Mm. It's so it's not. Um, And even if we didn't know from common sense, we know from research that people who expect life to be bumpy and and difficult and challenging and downright awful at times are actually overall happier than people who expect it to be all singing, dancing and glitter clouds, you Mm. know, because that's how life is. So one of the things that I I do is, is to help teachers teach children to cope with difficult feelings. So we explore the components of anger because anger can be a useful emotion, providing we're not overwhelmed by it. It might tell us that there's something that needs to be addressed or changed, Mm. for example. Um, Sorrow, sadness, even feelings of loss are useful to us because they can remind us that we are in a difficult time and need to take extra care of ourselves. So they, so all of these difficult emotions can give us um, important messages if we're unafraid to hear them and know how to um, feel them without becoming completely and utterly overwhelmed by them. And it comes so, back to what you were saying earlier about skillfulness, because mm-hmm. I think understanding and using our emotions skillfully for what for the purposes that they're designed for is one of the greatest skills we have because the human experience is unfathomably wide and deep and if we try and chuck out all of the unpleasant things they're going to come and bite us so understanding them and using them well is a life skill isn't it it is and also realizing that emotions change really quickly yeah um not all of them equally quickly Um, I do explain to children that the difficult emotions are like Velcro and tend to feel like they're hanging around more. And then the positive emotions are a bit like holding slippery slippery soap. They just kind of shoot off. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have to work a bit harder with those. But understanding that they all change, no matter how they feel in that moment, all emotions change. They come, they peak, they go. And equipping children with that knowledge is really, really important so that when they are in the grip of a feeling, they know it won't last forever, no matter how Velcro-like it is in that particular moment. Mm. And and that's one of the most powerful things that the children can learn, actually, that how I'm feeling right now may not be, or in fact will not be, how I feel at, at a point in the future that may not be that long away. Exactly. And it's a good reminder for us adults as well to recognise that because often we feel that especially difficult emotions like anger or frustration or grief, 
they feel like they hang around for a long time, but that's typically because of the story that mm. we're playing about it, isn't it? That, uh, and we just play that on a loop. So it's not so much the emotion that's the problem, it's the story that we've attached to that emotion that we have on a loop in our between our ears, as you said right at the beginning of the conversation. And how, yeah. do we, how do we just feel our emotions, allow them to be there, recognise them, take a moment with them, and then they move through naturally, don't they? They do. And, and it's quite interesting because there are various exercises that you can do on feeling how emotions show up in your body. But as you were saying, it's about the story. The, the image I like and use quite often is there's the picture, which is the feeling, and then there's the frame we put about it, which is the story we tell ourselves. Mm. And sometimes the frame is about twice the size of the picture, you know, so it's huge. Yeah. Uh, but if we just try and stay with the picture, if we just try and notice just the feeling and not the story, it isn't pleasant. That's why they're called difficult emotions. But they are not the huge obstacle and challenge that we think that they are so often when we put them in this humongously big frame. Yeah. Um, the, the, one of my favourite meditation teachers is, is a woman called Sharon Salzberg, and she tells a lovely story about her colleague, Joseph Goldstein, who was running a retreat one day, and they'd been doing a like a body scan exercise. And one of the participants sat down with Joseph and said, do you know, when we were doing that, I noticed I had this tension in my jaw because I so often get tense and... I, I'm just like this really tense guy and, and I don't see how anyone's going to fall in love with me and I, I, because I'm so tense and then I'm not going to get married and, and I'll be alone for the rest of my life. And all of it, and Joseph said, you mean you, you found tension in your jaw? <laughs> and I just love that. I was like, yeah, there's this tiny picture, tension in my jaw. And then this humongous frame <laughs> of I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. No wonder your jaw's tense. <laughs> yes, time time to reframe. Yeah, yes, beautiful. absolutely. Julie, this has been wonderful. I wonder before we leave if you could talk about or even give us um, a demonstration or help us understand what a compassion break is. Uh, the compassion break is one of my favourite exercises um, from Professor Kristen Neff, who's uh, one of the leading authorities on compassion. Uh, particularly self-compassion, actually. And she's based at um, Houston University in Texas. Uh, and if and if people just go to her website, she's got loads of free stuff there. Uh, but the compassion break is, is fabulous. And it's actually how I teach uh, both adults uh, and children to deal with difficult emotions. So basically, the, the compassion break has three elements. Is one, notice that we're having a difficult emotion. Because so often we're so terribly, you know, no, 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 let's just fix this. I'm not going to look at it. Well, actually, let's look at it. Let's just say this is what's happening for me right now. The second one is to realise that we are not, not alone. You know, either other people are going through the same thing, maybe not at the same time, perhaps it is. But all, all, they too have their things in life. We've all got stuff that goes on so so we're not alone because feeling isolated is not good for us as human beings we're not meant to be isolated and the last one is show ourselves a bit of kindness mm -hmm. and quite often that might be in a short phrase um that that helps us feel a little bit better so even something like this will pass this won't last forever or right now i'm doing the best i can going back to what we were saying about being skillful 
Um, anything like that works. So um, if you're happy for me, I can talk you through it. Please do it, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and try it. So, so basically, if possible, find a little moment of, of quiet um, where you won't be disturbed. I recommend that if all else fails, go and lock yourself in the loo for a minute and 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 find some quiet. Always good, yeah. Um, and and then I say to people, the, the best way to do this is with your eyes closed and with your hands, if you want to, crossed in the centre of your chest. There's a scientific reason for doing that, in that it produces oxytocin, which makes us feel better. Okay, so so you don't have to. You can hold your own hand as well. That also works. But crossing your hands in the centre of your chest is lovely. So if you could just sit quietly and with your eyes closed and if you choose to with your hands crossed in the centre of your chest and then just call to mind perhaps a difficulty you're facing at the moment, you know, a challenging day at work or maybe you're not feeling great, perhaps you're feeling anxious or worried or, or a bit low. Just first of all, notice that is how you're feeling. And um, One of the ways that I like to do that is just saying to myself, Mm, this is hard. Mm. This moment is hard. So this is difficult. Or right now, this is this is sad. This makes me sad or I'm feeling sad. Just recognise what it is. My favourite is this is hard because then I don't get caught up in defining how I'm feeling. This is hard right now. And just sit with that feeling for a minute or two of acknowledging how you are instead of that typical, oh, I'm fine actually, this is hard. I'm not fine. And the second part is saying, lots of people feel this way. I'm not alone. And that for me is a, is a big sense of comfort. I'm not alone. I may not know them, but other people feel this. So I'm not alone in feeling this way. And then the third one is that element of kindness sort of thing I would say to a friend and the sort of thing I'd say to a friend might be something like, do you know what? It'll be okay. You'll be okay. This will come to an end. You're going to be okay. Um, you're doing great. You know, give yourself a break. Mm -hmm. So those kind of encouraging little moments, little um, sentences that we would share with a friend and so the compassion break is literally running those three things together this is hard I'm not alone it will be okay and just as you do so do that little oxytocin boost of either holding your hand or hands on your heart center and just sit with that for a moment mm. and it is a short break and it is full of compassion for yourself and it is amazingly effective Thank you, Julie. That's absolutely beautiful. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I've been speaking with Julie Hurst. Her website is the WLBC.com, which is the Work Life Balance Center.com, but WLBC. You can email Julie at Julie at the WLBC.com. Twitter is at Julie WLBC. On LinkedIn, Julie Hurst. And Julie has a YouTube channel uh, if you just search for positive education and this will be in the show notes. There's some beautiful animations there for your work with your children in class. So, Julie, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's been a joy. It's been an absolute pleasure, Maria. Thank you very much for asking me. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you'd like to access tools and support to help you manage daily school pressures, stresses or anxiety, head to our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. 